1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com.
0: Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
2: And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love Live podcast. Thanks for listening. And uh, please, if you don't mind, take a moment right now to uh, forward an episode of our show to a friend who might enjoy it. Um, As you know, it's uh, work to grow a podcast, and we rely on all of our beloved listeners to help us. Uh, So if you enjoy what we do, Please share the word. And uh, having said that, today is episode two of our discussion of The Crucible, um, Arthur Miller's allegorical play about two great American hysterias. And no, this is not about any current moment that we're living (laughs) in. Uh, This book is about the Salem witch hunt of 1692, And it's written to parallel the red and lavender scare of the 1950s. And last week, we got into the background of the early American settlements and uh, set the stage for what's to come into play, which is basically the brutal murder of 25 innocent people. Nineteen were hung and five died in jail and one was crushed. Uh, literally. Uh, What we tried to impart, if nothing else, is that the social causes of the events of Salem Village are considerably more complex than Miller could have imagined when he started his investigation, or any of us probably think of when we think of this incident.
0: For sure. I mean, most of us think of it really quite one-dimensionally. We see a very religious and chauvinistic people scared of females. They call witches, and they kill underprivileged, innocent, powerless victims because of paranoia, fear, superstition, simple bindedness, prejudice, things that we as modern people, we would never do that. <laughs>
2: oh, mm, interesting. Not <laughs> mm, to disagree a little on that. Uh, but exactly. And, and what we discussed last week is that that's not even the beginning. Um, there are are family feuds and bitter rivalries and financial interests at stake in the background. And yes, there is also a fear, uh, but it's not a ridiculous fear. Uh, there's a lot of death in the New World, and fear of death is driving a fear of the devil, uh, of the frontier, of the woods, and of the Native Americans who live there. All of this contributed
0: Which is why when commenting on the historical accuracy of the play, Miller wrote, the play is not history in the sense in which the words is used by a historian. However, I believe that the reader will discover here the essential nature of the events. And what he means is that he wants to get to the heart of the trials and not the chronology of names and dates, although I will say the names and dates are there, but the nature of the Events, something that good artists are always trying to reflect, the causes, the humanity, the spirit of the main people, that sort of thing. Miller said one time that if you don't have a very strong moral compass in yourself, you can't create art. I found that interesting because I don't really think of artists that way. And maybe it depends on the artist. But in his case, that's what he was trying to do with his art. And for his audience to ask questions about really our own individual basic humanity. Because for Miller, we are these people. They're not so primitive. We're not so evolved. We're them, humans. And so because of that, we're capable of great things. Sure, we're capable of great love and sacrifice, but we're also capable of great evil. And he has something to say about that. So this week, what we're going to do is step away from the history side of this play completely and look at this play because he wants to juxtapose great love and sacrifice with great evil. And to do that, there are places where he deviates almost entirely from the facts of history. So today, let's drop history, Gary, entirely.
2: (laughs) Why am I here?
0: (laughs) And look at The Crucible from the literary perspective. Because this play is a tragedy with a focus on a single main character. A very, in some ways, traditional tragic hero, although that's controversial, John Proctor. This play centers around John Proctor. And it's not because he's the most influential villager. It's not because... He was hung historically, not because he's the most innocent. They're all innocent. In fact, the John Proctor of the play is actually not the John Proctor of history at all. I mean, the historical John Proctor is a 60-year-old wealthy man. He owns a farm, several businesses, including a tavern. He's a landlord. He's got money. He's an heir. Elizabeth, his wife, is his much younger third wife. And she, by the way, is a working woman, an herbalist. So these are not the two people that we meet talking to each other in Act 2. In the play, the character John Proctor is a struggling farmer in his mid-30s. His wife is sickly. But what is most highlighted by Miller is that John Proctor of the play has committed adultery.
2: And this twist in the truth has really galled many historians. (laughs)
0: Probably would gall the real John Proctor. (laughs)
2: Well, because it's not true. And some say it discredits John's memory, and others think it reduces um, the truth of the hysteria to an oversimplification of revenge instead of the actual complex reality. And from a historical standpoint, uh, the arguments make sense. But from a psychological perspective, making Proctor transgress sexually is extremely interesting, and he has many interesting things to say about that in this narration for the end of Act Two.
0: Well, I think it makes it more interesting anyway, but (laughs) those are good historical points. I won't debate that, and I doubt Miller would even argue with that. But by layering the story, where it speaks to more than one issue, makes the allegory more than just about Mass hysteria, and in some ways, it makes it more personal. Now, obviously, writing an allegory is not the same and is not supposed to be the same as making a historical argument about any event in history, like you would find in an essay. If that was the goal, Miller would do well just writing a comparative contrast essay about the Salem trials and McCarthyism. But no one would read that, by the way. <laughs> But a playwright tells the story of humanity because an artist sees things, you know, cosmically. And I want to argue that Miller absolutely reveals the essence of the hysteria of the Salem witch trials and parallels it to Senator McCarthy's persecution of communists and homosexuals for sure. And we'll talk about this. Abigail can be seen as a symbol for McCarthy, but we won't talk about it today. When he humanizes these characters, specifically the proctors, and we see into the struggles of their marriage, and Elizabeth's hurt, and John's guilt, and the sacrificial choices that both of them are going to make, and at the end, personal redemption, now that's something we can relate to on a personal level, because it's not just one-dimensional, it's not about a political martyr, I mean, who can identify well, I can't, but there might be people that can with Joan of Arc and Thomas Beckett and Mahatma Gandhi. They're just too big. But we can identify with John and Elizabeth Proctor. So Miller carefully crafts a tragic hero. that's very Greek, really. But it's also, Proctor's also modern, uh, just as Aristotle will tell playwrights and poetics when we talked about this before that you have to excite both pity and fear. For us, in modern days, this is done when the person is imperfect, a good person, but not so much a perfect person. (laughs) The person suffers beyond what they should. If you think about from Oedipus, you overpay for your sins. And that's kind of what we're going to see happen to Proctor in this play. And he starts, by the way, by doing this with the title.
2: Yes, the title, the (laughs) crucible. I mean, a very interesting title uh, that kind of evokes several different things.
0: It really does, because of course, and I didn't know this word before I read the play, there's a literal crucible, which is a metal or earthen vessel in which metal or stone are brought to extremely high temperatures for the purpose of changing their properties and to produce something else. That's a dictionary definition. But we hear a lot of the word crucible and association of a metaphor because these characters are put in the same way under a lot of pressure, extreme pressure, high temperature, so to speak. And it's going to change them. It's going to reveal them. It's going to produce something else. They're going to be different. Will they be good? Will they be burned up? The girls themselves at the beginning of the play, when they get busted, in a sense, are put under pressure. And crucibles are extreme tests. Uh,
2: Well, since we're talking imagery here, is it fair to say that a crucible uh, also conjures up the image of a giant pot? Like the kind (laughs) witches use to brew their concoctions?
0: Yes, so many levels. Every character in the play gets thrown into the witch's pot, into the crucible, and we will get to see what kind of person they really are when everything else is burned away. So, going back to John Proctor and this idea about what constitutes a tragic hero. I know this is a little theater-ish, but in classic theater, the tragic hero must be noble, must have something that in some way makes him or her better than us because if a character gets what's coming we like it when they die
2: <laughs> <A> little schadenfreude
0: <laughs> and it's interesting because when you read this play my students often almost always especially the girls have no pity for proctor proctor's a cheater definitely not a hero he sucks i mean that's just something that you hear every single time you read the play and it's interesting that Miller cleverly starts us there by introducing John Proctor, the predator. (laughs) But just as we're all not one thing, Miller teaches us that neither is Proctor. And although he is going to begin the story quite low in the estimation of many viewers, uh, even my students who are hardcore Proctor haters soften over the course of the story. Because Miller shows us that fallen people can also express great nobility. And sometimes that's just an encouraging thought to have. John Proctor, before the end of the play, but we will see even here at the end of Act Two, uh, where that's where we're going to stop today, expresses characteristics that we admire, even in how he relates to Abigail. He changes and he makes choices. Outside of his relationship with Abigail, he is a respected community member who sees through the nonsense of the witch hunt, and he sees the falseness of the Putnams and of Paris. And as audience members, we can see much more than the brutal side of John Proctor. Unlike any other character in this play, Proctor is set apart, and we see him from the inside, but we also see him through the lens of his enemies, and we hate his enemies. They envy him for things that we respect. So even these details are going to color our understanding of this central character. I read one article that says Proctor's not a Greek hero, he's a Byronic hero, which we use that word when we're talking about Heathcliff and Withering Heights. So I don't know if I want to go that far. (laughs) Hmm.
2: Uh, No, I'd say Abigail is more like Heathcliff.
0: I think so. There's a good research paper. Just generally
2: unlikable.
0: Yes, all you English students, compare those two orphans. But anyway, let's jump into the play. And think about this for a second. If you've ever thought about this, how would you tell the story if you were Miller? Think about all the history that we went over last week, just in the background. Sadly, it took us 45 minutes just to set it up. <laughs> uh, I would be overwhelmed immediately. How do you overlay all this plot intrigue, the political factions, the church dispute, the selfish minister, the financial interests of the Putnams, the bitter rivalry over the will, the fear of the Native Americans, the fear of diseases, the religion that is a lot to fit in the opening scene of a play.
2: And yet he does.
0: <laughs> right. And if you go back to Freight Tracks Triangle, I know we've talked about that a lot of episodes. We know that every story starts with an exposition. That's the everything that happens in the story before the plot starts, before the action starts. This is where you establish the characters, the settings. And Miller is really going to, pack a lot of stuff in the exposition. He uses five units of action that he, that theater people call French scenes. And they do this in order to get a lot of stuff packed in before the first real plot point occurs. And for us... The plot starts when Abigail makes her first accusation.
2: In a French scene, what is that? What is a French scene?
0: (laughs) Yeah, a French scene is when action goes from place to place on a stage, but you don't really break into different scenes like you would in a traditional play where you're going to change the lighting or the setting or the set or something like that. It's very quick. So, like, in this one, first we meet Betty and Abigail. Betty's catatonic. We understand a couple of girls are sick. We learn Paris has caught several girls with but performing a satanic ritual in the middle of the night in the woods. The girls are terrified of being whipped. Worse. We learned, because then we go to a conversation between Paris and the Putnams, that there are a ton of grudges in this town, and there's alliances, and this minister is unpopular. Mrs. Putnam is jealous, but she has a rival, and she only has one daughter and no grandchildren, but her rival, Rebecca Nurse, has 11 kids with 26 grandchildren. We learned that Paris's orphan niece, Abigail, used to live and work with the Proctors, but was Fired, And rumors are there was an affair. We learned that Dr. Griggs has diagnosed the girls with witchcraft, a fact that bothers Reverend Paris, but it bothers him not because he cares about the health and safety of his child. Oh, no, this is not even remotely referenced one time. He's worried that the shame of his daughter being involved in witchcraft is going to get him fired. This leads us to understand that he's greedy, and he's selfish, and so is the Putnams. They're not looking out for Betty or Ruth's uh, health, not even their religion. This is political, personal, and it can be leveraged to their advantage.
2: Wow. All of that. These people seem like real gems.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Miller really knows how to make you hate somebody (laughs) very quickly. He introduces Abigail, though, I think kind of more sympathetically, we learn that Abigail wants to keep her affair going with Proctor, but we're not immediately led to fault her for that. I mean, here she is, a virgin girl living in his home. Proctor's ashamed and he's upset and he wants to cut off the affair, but he doesn't really seem to empathize for what's, what he's done to Abigail, we also learn that Proctor isn't very diligent at going to church and he has a public disdain for this minister, which we don't notice why that matters at first, but it's going to be used against him later on. We find out that Paris, by the way, has called on a scholarly minister from another town, Reverend Hale. And this reverend is going to investigate what happened to the girls. Proctor, we're going to find out is against even entertaining these ideas, but Reverend Hale is presented as good and honest, and he's certainly sure he can tell the difference between people that are bewitched or not. Uh, We also, by the way, I shouldn't forget to mention that we do get a little bit of insight into Tituba or Tituba. The character in the play, which, remember, is not the Native American woman we met last week in history. Tituba, in this play, is an African-American slave from Barbados, and she took the girls into the woods. She is, by the way, the most vulnerable character. She knows that she's vulnerable. She knows her life is in danger. So, there you have it.
2: Wow. That uncovered a lot in just a few pages, uh, and that's just scratching the surface. I know.
0: Uh, let's read this dialogue that gets us into the inciting incident or narrative hook where Abigail throws Titsuba under the bus. By the way, if you've never heard that expression, putting somebody under the bus, it means you put all the blame on somebody else. It came I didn't, from Britain in the 1980s, by the way. But anyway, Tituba goes under the bus. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of different characters, but as we read this, Gary, I'll read the female parts if you take on all the men.
2: Hail, Abigail, it may be your cousin is dying. Did you call the devil last night?
0: I never called him. Tituba, Tituba.
2: Paris, she called the devil? Hail, I should like to speak with Tituba. Paris. Goody Ann, will you bring her up? Hale, how did she call him?
0: I know not. She spoke Barbados.
2: Hale, did you feel any strangeness when she called him? A sudden cold wind, perhaps? A trembling below the ground?
0: I didn't see no devil. Betty, wake up. Betty,
2: Betty. Hale, you cannot evade me, Abigail. Did your cousin drink any of the brew in that kettle?
0: She never drank it.
2: Did you drink it? No, sir. Did Tituba
0: ask you to drink it? She tried, but I refused.
2: Why are you concealing? Have you sold yourself to Lucifer?
0: I never sold myself. I'm a good girl. I'm a proper girl. She made me do it. She made Betty do it. Tituba, Abby? Abigail, she makes me drink blood.
2: Paris, blood?
0: Mrs. Putnam, my baby's blood. Tituba, no, no, chicken blood. I give her chicken blood.
2: Hail. Woman, have you enlisted these children for the devil?
0: No, no, sir. I don't truck with no devil.
2: Why can she not wake? Are you silencing this child?
0: I love my Betty.
2: You have sent your spirit out upon this child, have you not? Are you gathering souls for the devil?
0: She sends her spirit on me in church. She makes me laugh at prayer.
2: Paris, she have often laughed at prayer.
0: She comes to me every night to go and drink blood. Tituba me to conjure. She begged me make charm. Abigail, don't lie. She comes to me while I sleep. She always making me dream corruptions. Tituba, why you say that, Abby? Abigail, sometimes I wake up and find myself standing in the open doorway and not a stitch on my body. I always hear her laughing in my sleep. I hear her singing her Barbados songs and tempting me with Tituba, Mr. Reverend, I never... hail.
2: Tituba, I want you to wake this child.
0: I have no power on this child, sir.
2: You most certainly do, and you will free her from it now. When did you compact with the devil?
0: I don't compact with no devil.
2: Paris, you will confess yourself, or I will take you out and whip you to your death, Tituba. Putnam, this woman must be hanged. She must be taken and hanged.
0: Yikes, poor Tituba.
2: Uh, I want to circle back to our primary antagonist, not protagonist, but our primary antagonist, Abigail. Um, although certainly she's not the only one. Uh, first into play, she's not like eleven, like she is in history. She is seventeen and uh, still a child, but you know not as young. And she is the leader of the girls. Uh, but we also see even in Act One she is treacherous and she is self-preserving and she threatens literally to kill all the other girls if they tell on her and uh, then reminds them she watched native americans kill her parents and uh, uses that as a threat and she appears she's willing and capable of doing whatever it takes to become mrs john proctor and we believe her abigail believes elizabeth proctor to be a cold gossipy woman um, who not only is in the way between her and the man she wants, but is also keeping her from getting another babysitting gig in town.
0: <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to live with her uncle either. But, <laughs> you know, sexuality is not an uncommon trope for human frailty in a lot of literature. And here, you know, Miller is using this as a part of a much larger conflict. It's going to set up these primary characters for the individual crucibles that they're getting ready to go through. John Proctor is not all good. In fact, I'd say at this point, he's not good at all. Abigail is not all evil, even though, you know, that was a kind of mean thing we just saw her do. But in some sense, she's also a victim. Abigail lost her parents, her uncle, her caretaker. He's a horrible pig. That's sad. (laughs) She's 17. This affair would put Proctor in jail in the state of Tennessee, even today. She's underage. But she's not all victim, and she will go through her own crucible. It's true, she's had plenty of bad experiences, but what kind of person is she, either by her very nature or maybe because of the events of her life? But Abigail, and you can see it already, displays no compassion or empathy towards anyone. To the contrary, she displays malevolence, and when she is given power... When she has power to do good or evil, she makes her choice. And here we see her using her power in terms of her relationship with Tituba for evil. And you're going to see very quickly, she is very willing to destroy Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne in order to save herself. And she does it because she can. From a literary perspective, and this is something to think about. This play is very much about how people use their power. Every character does have power, and we're going to see what they do with it. When we get to Act 3 in the height of the trials, Mary Warren, which is this really unlikable character, one of the little girls, screams out, I don't have power. I don't have power. But we see that she does because she's going to use it to convict John Proctor Here at the beginning, we watch Abigail seize her personal power at every opportunity, and she never uses it for good. And as much as we don't like what Proctor did with Abigail, Miller does not build any empathy for Abigail.
2: So, Christy, do you realize you just spoiled the surprise ending? (laughs) Now we know Proctor dies,
0: oh, well, let's be honest, it's a tragedy.
2: <laughs> well, and the book's been out for a, the play's been out for a while, so That's true. nobody should be surprised. Well,
0: you know, the thing about tragedy, some people find it, you know, soothing or consoling because there's hopelessness, and they see that as a good thing. There's no surprises. There's no hope that you're getting out of the entanglement. We just fully expect to watch a total descent into destruction usually involving multiple deaths or at the minimum a good divorce <laughs> and in a good tragedy. We know it could be us. But let me add one more thing because Miller is writing a tragedy. It's important and I want to bring out that Proctor can't be perfect. When a perfect man is destroyed by evil, it's shocking but it's not the same feeling that they want to build in tragedy. For the whole thing to work, they really do need to be human like us. So we're going to have Proctor, who Miller will make you eventually decide whether you want to or not, is a good person, even though he's not a perfect one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, psychologically, uh, it's important that, that Proctor has violated his own code of ethics morally, uh, but he's honest enough to take responsibility for it, and he doesn't blame his wife, or he doesn't blame his situation. And He's fallen in his own eyes. And because of this, uh, he has created a tragedy, but not just for himself. And honesty is something he prides himself with. And he tells Elizabeth that he's honest, even though he has cheated on her. And he lied about talking to Abigail alone in the town. So in that sense, he's clearly not honest. But in another more important sense, he is an honest person. He's honest with himself, about himself, which is a rare trait. And later on in the play, we're going to see that Abigail's absolutely not honest. And it appears that um, over the course of time, Abigail believes half the stuff she's making up. Uh, But before we end scene one of act two, Proctor, um, he's honest enough with himself to understand that if he had not slept with Abigail, she would not have accused Elizabeth. And. Maybe Elizabeth and he had had marital problems before the affair. Uh, Elizabeth hints at it this at the end of the play, maybe not. But we never hear a word from John to suggest this. And uh, John understands that he has made Elizabeth a victim and created in her this spiritual suffering. And as we watch this dialogue through Act 1 and Act 2, we see how he tries to fix it. And one more thing I want to say, uh, psychologically speaking, it's interesting that Miller chose to represent this guilt and fallenness with sexuality. And sexuality is the most intimate of human experiences. During sex, humans are at their most vulnerable. So here we see a man at his most vulnerable and his most embarrassing because he he's violated Abigail and he's violated Elizabeth and he's violated himself. And one of the things that Arthur Miller likes to point out in one of his narrations is that very early on, in theater and culture we in history we associated sex with the devil
0: oh my well to me proctor holding himself accountable and acting on that makes, that's what makes him heroic. If we're honest, sooner or later, all of us don't, we don't, none of us can live up to our own standards if we have any that are worth anything. But it's hard to own that. It's especially hard if we have to say that we've hurt people that we love or that people that we're responsible for. But even if we can own our mistakes, which, you know, that's, a lot of us can't do that. But even if you can, now what? Feeling responsibility, well, that's just a feeling. What are you going to do? What's it going to take to find redemption? I mean, no one wants to self-destruct, but are you brave? Are you noble? Are you going to pay the cost of redemption?
2: Isn't it interesting how Miller makes every person in the audience do some soul searching on those very questions during the play? And You know, uh, nobility always comes at a price, doesn't it? Uh, You know, Proctor has handicapped himself not just in dealing with himself and not just in dealing with Abigail, but with Paris and Putnam, too. And we see in Act 1 that Proctor wants to wash his hands of the whole town's problems, and he doesn't want to have anything to do with any of the political nonsense of the Putnams and the minister and any of it. But Abigail will not let him off the hook.
0: Oh, no. This is her moment. She has found her power, and she is going to use it. Before we get into Act 2, I want to read the last bit of Act 1. Abigail, as you know, has accused Tituba, who tries to defend herself, but Putnam cries out that Tituba should hang. He brings up death. What is she to do? Well, she only has one choice, obviously. So she confesses. And when she does, Hale asks her this question. When the devil come to you, does he ever come with another person? Perhaps another person in the village. Perhaps someone you know. And when Hale asks that, Putnam interjects. And he tells Tituba whose name to call. He says this, Sarah Good. Did you ever see Sarah Good?
2: (laughs) Well, and let me add this, too. Uh, This is one of the most powerful men in town. He's... Threatened to hang her, and he actually has the power to do it. And when he suggests a name, uh, she doesn't have a choice. So Tichuba never names anyone without being told who to name first. And for me, Miller has made uh, only one character totally blameless, and it's tituba uh, She has the least amount of power, the least amount of agency. She's the first victim. And ironically, we know from history that she actually survives.
0: Smart girl. <laughs> <laughs> But do you really think she's any less blameless than Elizabeth Proctor? I mean, Elizabeth Proctor is a very noble character. Oh,
2: there's no doubt. And and I really like the way he portrays the marriage between Elizabeth and John. And uh, I'm getting to Act 2, obviously, but at this point, uh, it's been seven months since John's confession, to use his words. And uh, the dialogue between Elizabeth and John, where they talk about her killing a rabbit for dinner, is so awkward even just reading the lines in a book, you can feel the tension between the oh, two. Oh, you really can. Another sign of great writing. <laughs> I don't want to comment on how um, Elizabeth or anyone should react after such a trauma to a relationship. That's not my point. I just want to say that Miller has painted their relationship differently than how he's characterized Tichuba. Tichuba's role is not complex or developed. She's the first victim of the hysteria.
0: Well, mass hysteria has arrived between Act 1 and Act 2. Hell literally has broken loose. So, Gary, explain to me a little bit about this concept that we call mass hysteria, just kind of from a psychological perspective, outside the context of the play. What is that? And can you say whether what happened in Salem is the usual way that mass hysterias occur?
2: Well... For the record, I love mass hysteria as a psychological (laughs) concept. I'll try to limit myself here. But uh, mass hysteria is a common term that's used um, to describe a situation when a uh, group of individuals will will experience a collective panic over some occurrence. And uh, often they have some actual physical symptoms, but there's no medical basis for the symptoms. And um, hysterias occur all over the world and all throughout human history. It's completely independent of historical period or cultural setting it's It's pervasive and although uh, I'm sorry to tell you this, Christy, because oh, no. I know you're going to take this as a personal offense. <laughs> All right. And I could stir up some trouble here, but historically, it's been most common among women. And to be more specific, it's most common with young adolescent girls, exactly like the girls we see in Salem.
0: Well, I have to admit, as insulting as that is, it's not surprising. I've been a teenage girl, and I've attended, I'm not ashamed to say, with my daughters, a One Direction concert not once, but twice. So I have seen mass hysteria, <laughs> and I will say this: I'm not sure there were a hundred men in the entire Bridgestone Arena the first time we saw One Direction.
2: So twenty thousand women <laughs> and one hundred men. What could go wrong?
0: Yes, but you know why? When I think back at my concert experiences, you know, I can remember vividly. There's girls frenzied, and they a few of them fall over, but it's not. Harmful. It's kind of funny. And well, I'll never forget. I've literally seen girls uncontrollably sobbing as Zane and Louie, they're jumping out, shaking their hands as these guys that they don't really know come out on stage. And you just have to be mesmerized, but I just laugh. The girls go nuts. Uh, Lots of times their moms go with them, but.
2: As I for know. you, I'm glad you're able to restrain yourself from watching <laughs> stage. I know, I have. <laughs> well, there are several factors, and we see this in Salem, uh, that is going to take it to the next level. Uh, but I want to add that, uh, interestingly enough, there are instances where hysteria actually can promote some positive social change. Some would say that the Gezi Park movement in Turkey is an example, and Uh, There have been others. I won't comment on your One Direction experience.
0: That's positive social change in the making.
2: (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I missed that event, or by design. (laughs) Anyway, uh, but I can speak to my own rock concert experience. I'm a fan of a band called Shine Down, and I remember going to their concerts and being in that mass of people. Uh, When you're in a place like that, you feel the energy involved and the energy of the group, and there's excitement. and. You feel united with others in this single cause, uh, but you can also feel fidgety and you can experience emotional excess. And uh, if you've been to a music festival, you've likely seen some of that. The big difference, though, with the concert analogy um, is that with a concert, there's no general anxiety that pushes the hysteria and the fear forward. Um, A majority of instances of mass hysteria, at least that I know of, are associated with health scares. Um, young girls fainting in mass uh, it has happened more than once. But there's others where people did actually get physically sick just by thinking and believing there were. And there's the concept of the hysterical pregnancy where a woman will show all the signs of being pregnant physically, but she's just not. And um, there's a, a famous scare in Jordan where people thought a TDT vaccine was making them sick. And in Ohio, there was. Not one, not too long ago, called the kissing bug hysteria. <laughs> uh, people were believing that they were being bitten by a deadly bug. And so basically you take that energy and emotion, like we're talking about from the concert, and you combine that with an actual real fear, uh, almost always a fear of death. You put those two together, even if it doesn't make sense, you have the perfect storm for a hysteria. Uh, and I will say, before I move on, That some of the that we study in textbooks are actually funny Um, after they're over, at least. And we can look back at them from the kind of the safe distance of history. uh, Like one of my favorites, the one with the nuns meowing (laughs) or the the great Seattle windshield pitting hysteria. I mean, it's kind of funny that people thought someone was randomly damaging windshields all over the place. and They had to get the government involved in it. But uh, going back to Salem. People are literally afraid for their lives. And this is also true with the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare that we'll talk about in a different episode. We have to remember that this community has lived in constant fear of a forest that surrounds their town. And people have died in that forest. And uh, they have people in their community like Abigail who've been victims of the Indian raids. And they sincerely believe that the American frontier is a domain of Satan. Um, it's scary it's close by and uh, those girls in the story and, and I'm not talking about Ruth and Betty from the beginning but now I'm talking about the massive girls who stand in uh, the courtrooms and fall on the floor like Mary Warren and in Act Two. these girls may be faking those physical symptoms but it's just as likely that they're actually experiencing symptoms uh, the way Miller characterizes Mary Warren I, I tend to believe she is in part is experiencing something and now, to answer your question, how does all this get to the level of hysteria? Uh, beyond fear and beyond excitement, there's uh, one more key ingredient to in hysteria, and it is what we see happening in Act 1 through the character of Mr. Putnam, and that is the power of suggestion. If you notice, Mr. Putnam, who is a total rat <laughs> suggests that there are riches, uh, witches he puts it out there uh, he pushes the narrative forward and in the modern world um, the media often performs this function and in some cases the media does it intentionally In others it appears to be accidentally But in Putnam's case, he manipulates through religion and the preacher, the real fears of this community, and he manipulates the naivete of this bookish Reverend Hale that comes on the scene, and he pushes the narrative forward for what appears to be really malevolent intentions of his own, except in this case, as in all cases of mass hysteria, once something gets out of control... Other characters take the lead, and in our case, that's going to bring us back to Abigail.
0: Back to Abigail. Where Act One is historical, political, clearly allegorical, Act Two is personal. And really, honestly, more fiction than fact. But it's where three characters are thrown into this crucible. We see the dialogue between John and Elizabeth in Act 2, Scene 1. And it's so moving and revealing. It's been eight days since the hysteria, seven months since they've had gotten rid of Abigail. The hysteria has grown worse. And Elizabeth wants John to go to town and testify against Abigail. But he's hesitant. Elizabeth claims it's because he still has feelings for Abigail. This is a very intense scene, and it's not funny, although it does have one of my favorite phrases in the play.
2: <laughs> and what would that be?
0: Well, right before Mary Warren walks in to tell them that there are now 39 women arrested, Elizabeth and John are talking about them, their lives over the last seven months, and he says this, Oh, Elizabeth, your justice would freeze beer. I don't know why that strikes me so
2: funny. It's an interesting (laughs) insult.
0: It really is. I mean, how cold does a woman have to be if your attitude can be compared to frozen beer? And how cold does beer actually have to be to freeze?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I look it up, uh, according to the interwebs, uh, beer freezes at 28 degrees Fahrenheit or 2.2 degrees below Celsius to be exact. So I guess the question is a little colder than normal.
0: Well not to decale, well not to curtail our discussion by injecting beer into the equation, but this is where the external plot really takes off. John Proctor versus Abigail. It's also where any remaining remnant of sympathy for Abigail dies completely. We are going to see a little bit of how malevolent or evil Abigail really can be. It's no secret that she wants to become the next Mrs. John Proctor, and she's willing to do a lot to get that. It's also also understandable that she doesn't want to get in trouble for the stuff that she did in the woods. But now we've got a real victim. The first victim, Goody Osborne, is actually going to hang And we know that Abigail has already told Proctor that she's made up the whole thing. Abigail is literally willing to kill this poor woman. This is something, by the way, that Elizabeth clearly knew about Abigail from the very beginning. Elizabeth says this, She wants me dead. I knew all week it would come to this. Miller really gives Elizabeth, I think, by the way, the best lines in the play. Proctor is shocked how far Abigail is willing to go. And Elizabeth says this, John, grant me this. You have a faulty understanding of young girls. There is a promise made in any bed. Of course, John doesn't like that. He reacts and he's angry, but he's not really angry at Elizabeth. Elizabeth goes on to say, it is her dearest hope, John. I know it. There'll be a thousand names. Why does she call mine? There's a certain danger in calling such a name. I am no goody good that sleeps in the ditches, nor Osborne, drunk and half-witted. She dare not call out such a farmer's wife, but there be monstrous profit in it. She thinks to take my place. And if you notice, and you can't see this if you're watching the play, but after Proctor's next line... Miller is going to add a little commentary for the actor who's memorizing the lines to read. And Miller puts in there, he knows this is
2: true. And I would like to point (laughs) out we're dealing with a legitimate psychopath here.
0: Well, Abigail has contrived to kill Elizabeth, and she thinks she has enough power to manipulate this entire town. We find out that day in court that Abigail had watched Mary Warren make a doll. Now, they use this word puppet during the proceedings. But at the end of the proceedings that day, she watched Mary Warren put the needle from sewing the puppet into the puppet before leaving to go home. Well, after Mary Warren leaves, Abigail literally stabs herself in the stomach and then claims that Elizabeth did it when she sent her spirit out to murder her. Well, Reverend Hale, that arrogant, naive scholar who believes everything these girls say, or at least he has up to this point, comes out to the Proctor's farm to confront Elizabeth for her so-called crime. And here we're going to see Miller weave Proctor's internal conflict within himself with this external conflict with Abigail there's this ironic discussion about Proctor he can't remember one of the commandments and the commandment that he fit forgets is thou shalt not commit adultery ah but by the end of the conversation with uh with Hale Proctor has decided that he's going to martyr himself by telling the community about the affair That he's been concealing and he's going to admit that he's talked privately with Abigail and what she said. He's going to choose not to betray and victimize Elizabeth for the second time or possibly letting her die. So Proctor makes his decision. He will save Elizabeth's life. He will take down Abigail and he doesn't care if it's going to cost him in the process. So let's read the end of Act 2. Hale has interrogated Elizabeth. He's dragged her out. He's put her into the wagon. He's getting ready to take her to jail. Listen to the irony in these interesting lines by Hale when Miller reveals to the audience, but unbeknownst to the character Hale, that this is about the power we surrender when we live with a dark secret.
2: Proctor is speaking. You are a coward Though you be ordained in God's own tears, you are a coward now.
0: Hail. Proctor, I cannot think God be provoked so grandly by such a petty cause. The jails are packed. Our greatest judges sit in Salem now and hangings promised. Man, we must look to cause proportionate. Were there murder done? Perhaps and never brought to light? Abomination? Some secret blasphemy that stinks to heaven? Think on cause, man, and let you help me discover it. For there's your way. Believe it. There is your only way when such confusion strikes upon the world. Let you counsel among yourselves. Think on your village and what may have drawn from heaven such thundering wrath upon you all. I shall pray God open up our eyes. And then hail goes out. And then Francis says, I never heard no murder done in Salem.
2: Leave me, Francis. Leave me.
0: Giles. John, tell me. Are we lost?
2: Go home now, Giles. We'll speak on it tomorrow.
0: Giles. Let you think on it. We'll come early, eh?
2: Eh. Go now, Charles.
0: Giles. Good night, then.
2: Eh. Go now, Giles.
0: Giles. Good night, then. Mary Warren. Mr. Proctor, very likely they'll come her home once they've given proper evidence.
2: You're coming to the court with me, Mary. You will tell it in the court. I cannot
0: charge murder on Abigail.
2: You will tell the court how that poppet came here and who stuck the needle in it.
0: She'll kill me for saying that. She... Abby will charge letchery on you, Mr. Proctor.
2: She's told you.
0: I have known it, sir. She'll ruin you with it. I know she will.
2: Good. Then her saintliness is done with. We will slide together into our pit. You will tell the court what you know.
0: I cannot. They'll turn on me. I cannot. I cannot.
2: My wife will never die for me. I will bring your guts into your mouth, but that goodness will not die for me.
0: I cannot do it. I cannot.
2: Make your peace with it. Now hell and heaven grapple on our backs, and all our old pretenses ripped away. Make your peace.
0: I cannot. I cannot. I cannot. I cannot. I cannot.
2: Peace, it is a providence, and no great change. We are only what we always were, but naked now. I, naked in the wind, God's icy wind will blow.
0: I cannot, I cannot, I cannot. Well, there we have it. She cannot.
2: Oh, (laughs) we wrapped up a lot of drama in a short amount of time right there. But uh, again, another great testimony to Arthur Miller's genius. Well,
0: we'll pick up Act 3 next week and get into some of the trial dialogue. And it is full of what we're going to talk about next week, logical fallacies. I love logical fallacies.
2: (laughs) They're a favorite.
0: (laughs) So does Miller.
2: All right. Well, thanks for being with us today. As we always like to ask you, please check us out on Instagram and Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And uh, you can check out our whole entire website at howtolovelipodcast.com. We have stuff on poetry. We have teaching materials for teachers free, I might add, that you can use. Thanks for being with us.
0: Peace out.